Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Do you ever wonder about using wax as a finish? Do you dislike the yellow color imparted by oil-based finishes and shellac? Do you want to try your hand at hand-cut dovetails but you're afraid to jump in? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 41 of the show for January 9th, 2019, and Happy New Year. Before I start today's show, I want to take a minute to thank all our patrons for your continued support of the show. And thanks to a new patron this week, Andrew McNaughton, for signing up to support the show. Listener support helps keep the show going, so if you'd like to support the show yourself, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And this is the, the point where I would normally say that if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. But I have some new things planned for this year. Now, if you're already a patron of the show, you likely already heard about this on December's Patron Extra show. But the changes I'm making are, are going to affect everyone who listens to the podcast or watches my YouTube channel, which uh, you know is kind of sporadic at this point. But um, but it's, uh, essentially, it's not going to be just for the folks who pledge three dollars a month or more. So, as part of my my personal kind of year-end review of what's gone with the podcast and YouTube and all of the little woodworking things that I try to have a a small hand in, Um, I took a step back to kind of reassess exactly what my goals are for the podcast and and for YouTube. And what I realized is that I really wanted to make a few minor changes to the way I'm doing things in order to, to better achieve what I originally set out to do, which is to reach and help as many folks as I possibly can along their woodworking journey, no matter what their financial situation is. And it occurred to me um, that by limiting the audience for the Patreon Extra podcasts or um, videos that I was releasing for, you know, the Patreon Extra show, that I was alienating folks who might really get some benefit from that extra content, but who just really couldn't afford the additional expense. So, and having been there myself in the past, you know, I realized that restricting that content really went against all the reasons that I started doing the podcast and the YouTube channel in the first place. I don't think it was necessarily unfair. Uh, in fact, in fact, I think, you know, I think it's completely fair for someone who supports the show financially to get a little something extra for doing so. But I thought maybe there could be a, a slightly better way to satisfy both goals to reach and help as many people as possible, regardless of their financial situation, and to give my patrons a little something extra for their support. So along those lines, I'm going to try something a little different this year. Rather than restricting what was before the monthly patron extra show, just to patrons who are able to pledge $3 a month or more, I'm going to open up the content to everyone. What I'm going to do is a monthly YouTube video that I'm going to call the patron Q&A. The concept is that I'll take one or two patron questions and then answer them in a video that airs at the end of each month. Everyone will have access to view the content, whether you're a patron or not, but only patron questions will be answered in the videos. 
Um, and as well, you don't have to pledge $3 a month or more to have your question addressed. Patrons at any level, um, you know, from the $1, um, the $1 level to, you know, whatever you want to pledge, um, can have, you know, you'll have your questions addressed in, in that patron Q and a video. And who knows if I get enough questions, uh, maybe I'll be able to do uh, more than one video, more than one video a month. So, uh, we'll see how that goes. And, and I realize that I, I might lose some of my current patrons by making this change and that, you know, some of them might decrease their pledge, um, down to a lower level, but you know, I'm okay with that. I, I'm not doing this to make money. My main goal for the Patreon campaign is just to kind of cover my costs for things like producing and hosting the show, um, any materials that I might have to get to do the Q and a videos and things like that. So, um, I never got into this to get rich and, you know, it's a good thing because, um, you know, if I did, I'd probably be podcasting from a, a Walmart tent um, out in a, in a parking lot or a field somewhere. So, um, you know, it's it's not about the money, really. Um, I just want to kind of cover costs and, and materials and things like that. So starting this month, I'm going to put up a post over on the Patreon page at the beginning of the month, probably right after this podcast comes out. Um and it's going to be, you know, a call for questions or topics for that month's patron Q&A video. And if you're a patron at any level, you'll be able to access that post and ask questions or suggest uh, ideas for that month's video. And then at the end of the month, I will release the patron Q&A video um, over on YouTube. And then I'll, I'll also put it on the Patreon page as well. Um I'm also going to be re-releasing some of the previous patron Q&A videos so that, you know, anybody can watch them and it'll kind of give folks um, a bit of an idea of, of what these things are going to entail, what these videos will be like. So I hope you'll support me in making the change. Um, I have already received great support from current patrons and some have even reached out to me directly just to specifically let me know that they have no intention of decreasing their pledge or discontinuing their support and that they fully support the changes. So um, I was really happy to hear that. And I hope that you'll agree in that uh, if you're able to, and uh, you so desire, you can sign up over at patreon.com slash BR fine woodworking and submit your own questions or suggestions for the Q and a video, no matter what level you choose to support at. So on to the, the shop talk, uh, haven't done a whole lot lately the holidays you know just got finished up we did some traveling back up to new jersey for uh the holidays and i always seem to get sick i take vacation uh usually around usually about two weeks the end of the year i take vacation and uh, it is without fail just about every year uh the second week after the week after christmas we go up to new jersey to visit family for uh, the holidays um, and I always get sick. It, it never fails. I'll be fine the rest of the year. And that one week that we go back up to New Jersey, I get sick. So so I've been fighting that off for uh, the last week, week and a half. Um, but before the holidays, I did finish up a, a couple of commissions. I had a, a saw that uh, I made last year, uh, you know, late last year, uh, as well as a couple marking gauges. Um, I do have a, another commission uh, that I'm getting ready to start as well. And uh, I'll have some details on that in a future show, and I'll, I'll probably uh, I'll probably post some progress of that on the blog too once that one starts because I think that one will be kind of interesting. It's a it's a neat piece, um, and I'm also getting ready to start the construction of 
the new shop space as the uh, the log cabin work continues. Um, I'm at almost at the point now where um, that's the next logical thing for me to do is to uh, is to put up the uh, the stud walls down in the garage and uh, put up the um, you know so that we can insulate that that garage and and the garage ceiling, get all the electrical run um, so that I can get everything insulated and get it inspected so that we can close it all in and move on. So, uh, so that's what I should be working on hopefully within the next couple of weeks. So that's about it from the shop. Let's get into our list, our questions for this week. Uh, the first one comes from Mike Davis Cheshire and he's got a question on making a flag case. Hi Bob, this is Mike Davis Cheshire. I would like your feedback and suggestions as far as how to go about making a display case for a traditionally folded American flag. Thanks. So really cool project there, and thanks for the voicemail, Mike. Um, you know, it's um, it's actually should be quite a bit simpler than uh, than one might think. Um, it's going to depend on what type of joinery you really want to uh, want to do for the case. Most of the time, what you usually see are miters um, because the the case is viewed from the front, um, and you kind of you know you want to see those miters that really makes the front of the case look nice and clean. Um, you can dovetail the corners if you really want, but on something so small, I don't think it's really necessary. <clears throat> Um, or even desirable, really, um, because you really want to see that nice, clean, mitered edge. So, um, so that would be my suggestion: is to to use miters, and whether or not you want to reinforce them with splines, um, you know. And you can do. Um, if I was going to do that, I would probably do um, splines on the sides where the miters join, and I would do them after mitering. Um, and I would probably just use like veneer stock, commercial veneer stock. Um, and you'd be surprised how much extra strength that commercial veneer stock would, would add. Um, and you can just saw, you know, saw through the miter once it's glued together with your, with whatever back saw you have and, uh, and glue in a strip of veneer, um, right across that miter and, uh, and it'll provide a lot of extra, uh, extra support. Um, but again, that's if you really want to, it's probably not even necessary. Um, the angles are typically going to be, you're going to have a 90 degree corner at the top. So that's going to be 45 degree miters. And then the two angles at the bottom are going to be 45 degrees. So you're going to have 22 and a half degree miters at the bottom. My preference or how I would, how I would likely make them would be to make two jigs essentially or two appliances two different shooting boards i would make the first one would be a donkey's air shooting board for shooting um, 45 degree long miters and then the second one would be a donkey's air shooting board for shooting 22 and a half degree miters that way you just cut your you know cut the pieces to length and the the two the two legs that join at 45 degrees to make the 90 degree corner, they're going to be identical in length. So I would cut those two pieces first. I would plane the 
45 degree miters first to make sure I can get a good 90 degree corner. And then I would plane the opposite ends down, lay out the, uh, out the miter with this, with, uh, you know, your, your knife and your squares, and then, uh, saw the miter and plane it on the donkey's ear shooting board and plane it until both pieces are exactly the same length. I wouldn't worry so much about the exact length. Um, you know, just kind of size it to what it should be based upon the size of the flag. And it's going to change depending on the size of the flag, obviously. So um, I would make sure you have your flag on hand so that you know about how big it needs to be. Um, so just saw those 22 and a half degree miters um, and then plane them nice and true on your donkey's ear shooting board set at 22 and a half degrees. And then as long as you make sure those two sides are exactly the same length and that 45 degree miter and and your 22 and a half degree miters are, are are dead on and your shooting board should get them that way if you make um, make an accurate shooting board the last piece should be easy because essentially you're just going to you can cut it oversized and then plane the 22 and a half degree miter on one end and then the other end you're just going to continue to plane that 22 and a half degrees down until it fits between the other two boards. Um, unlike making a square frame, you don't have to make the other two, you know, the other piece equal in length to its mate. So you're not going to have a matching piece, obviously, um, since there's only three pieces in the case. Um, so that that's what, what I would do. I would do miters, um, and then I would pl- probably plow a groove after those miters were cut for the glass um, and then probably plane a rabbit along the back edges for some type of, of backboard um, that you could put in to hold the flag in place once uh, once it was folded and put into the case so um, I would you know I, I would glue the miters up with the glass in place um, and then make the make the backboard and uh, and that's it I think it should be a pretty easy pretty straightforward project I think the probably the most time consuming thing is going to be making those shooting boards but a 45 degree donkey's ear shooting board is going to be a very valuable appliance to have anyway 22 and a half degree shooting board donkey's ear may end up being a single use appliance unless you plan to make the uh, more than one case more than one flag case but um in order to ensure that you get nice fitting joinery at those corners, I think it would be worth the time and effort to make that shooting board for this project. So that would be my suggestion. So our next question comes from Brian Steinberger. Brian says, I'm curious about wax. I always hear about how wax needs regular maintenance. Could you explain exactly why it needs maintenance, what this maintenance is, and what would happen if the maintenance was not done? If I sell a piece to someone, should I be telling them to carry out this maintenance? I can't imagine many people wax their furniture on a regular basis anymore, only with something like pledge, maybe. So, Brian, good question. Um, I wouldn't say it needs regular maintenance. I guess occasional maintenance, um, maybe. So, the problem with wax finishes is, um, over time, you know, they will often tend to get a little hazy, Um whether that's because the wax picks up dust or moisture from the air or, you know, whatever it is, 
sometimes wax finishes can get, you know, wax on the surface can get a little sticky, uh, a little hazy. So um, usually it would help to kind of strip off the old coat of wax and reapply a new coat of wax. Now, my, so this is in, in reference to putting wax on as like a top coat over something else, like over a varnish. Um, and I do this quite frequently over, over varnish or over shellac, I will wax the surface. Um, and for me, it's more of a feel thing. So when I varnish a surface, it, it could feel nice, but when you rub out that varnish finish or that shellac finish with some four rot steel wool and put a coat of wax on there and then buff that up to a nice, like soft kind of satin sheen. Um, it gives you a surface that's not only nice to look at, but it almost begs you to touch it. And a lot of times a, a plain varnish finish without the wax on it just doesn't do that. But again, the wax can tend to attract some dust and so, you know, over time, um, and get a little sticky if, if it's not, um, if it gets soft, you know, um, if somebody puts a hot drink on it and the wax gets soft and you get rings or something like that. Um, so those are some reasons why it might need maintenance. And then again, over time, it could just, you know, from, from people's hands touching it and, um, just dust and, and dirt in the air that settles on it and constantly wiping it. Um, it could tend to get a little bit grimy, a little bit hazy, um, and dirty. So you might want to refresh that finish. Um, when I take care of a, a wax finish and I don't necessarily always wax every part of a piece. If I'm making a table, for example, um, I might rub everything out. Um, but I might only wax like the, you know, the exterior surfaces. It really depends on what I'm, what I'm going after but I may not necessarily wax every surface, but sometimes you might have to strip that wax off. Sometimes it's just a matter of applying a new coat of wax. You can, um, the solvent in new wax will very often dissolve the old wax. So you can just apply a new coat of wax with uh, some 4 out steel wool. Um, that'll clean up the surface, dissolve the old wax, add a little bit of new wax, kind of clean up that dirt a little bit, buff the whole thing back up, and it's it's good to go. Sometimes you might want to fully strip the old wax surface off without stripping the varnish underneath of it. Um, and you can use a little mineral spirits or a little bit of naphtha for that, and then apply a new coat of wax. I don't typically tell my customers, if I if I wax a piece, I don't tell them to maintain it. Um, because typically it's going to be, um, a finish that is pretty impervious anyway. Um, if I'm going to put a film finish on, it's probably going to be a varnish or something, um, so that they don't have to do too much maintenance. And if I'm putting the wax on, usually it's just as a lubricant for the steel wool so that I can rub out the finish and get a nice even satin sheen. So I don't usually tell them to do anything with it. Um, if I get questions about, you know, in a few years, the surface tends to look a little bit hazy. Um, you know, I'll tell them to, that they can, you know, just rub it with a little bit of, of furniture wax, like a finish, min wax, finishing wax or something like that. Um, and, and then buff it out and that should bring, bring the shine right back up. So, um, I don't necessarily tell them that they have to do routine maintenance on it. Um, but you know, if I do get a call that it's it's getting kind of hazy or dusty or dirty and how can they clean it? 
then I'll kind of walk them through the process. Or if it's um, someone who's close by, I might, you know, take the piece and, and do it myself. But um, I think the need for maintenance is a little bit overstated. Um, of course, a wax finish is going to wear away in time, especially if it's a high use type of surface. If you're talking about a dining room table that gets wiped down all the time, um, or a, a butcher block or a countertop or something like that, that's getting a lot of use and a lot of handling and touching, um, more than likely you're going to just end up stripping that wax coating off anyway as part of regular handling. So the reason for applying or maintaining the finish is to put more wax on. But I think that's more in the case of a finish that is just wax or maybe oil and wax where um, you don't have a whole lot of protection. So you want to add a little more wax once in a while to keep that protection. But if you're waxing over a varnish finish, I would say there's not really much you need to do um, unless the finish gets hazy and you want to strip the old wax or add a little bit of new wax and buff it out again just to, to bring the shine back. So our third question comes from Dave Van Ness. Dave says, I'm interested in sharpening panel saws. My longest has a 28 inch long blade. What sort of saw vise would you recommend? So you've got a lot of options um, and it's really going to depend on your desire and your budget. Um, if you really want to go the low tech low budget route. Um, you can very easily make your own saw vise out of wood and there are numerous, uh, numerous plans for doing so on the internet. If you just Google, you know, wooden saw filing vise, you'll find lots of options and lots of plans. And most of them, um, will work pretty good. Um, the problem is they, over time, they tend to not grip as strongly. Um, and you'll get some vibration in the saw. And if, if they're not made well, You'll get some vibration when you're filing. Um, my first saw vise was a wooden one that um, that I made, and it worked quite well for a little while until uh, until it kind of the jaws started to wear out a little bit, and then it didn't grip so well, and I got starting to get a little bit more vibration. So, um, but it's certainly you know a low budget option, and it's the easiest way to get started. Um, your second option is to buy an antique cast iron saw vise. And there's lots of those on eBay and at flea markets, um, you know, that, that have tool vendors at them. Um, you can usually find them pretty easily. Um, the thing I would be careful with the antique cast iron saw vices is to make sure that the jaws close evenly and tightly. Um, I bought a cast iron saw vice sight unseen one time from an online tool dealer. And when I got it and closed it up, um, it was apparent that the, the jaws did not close evenly. And in fact, the one side, the jaws didn't close at all. They, they, they touched on the one side on the right side when I closed them up. And on the left side, there was a gap between the two jaws. So that saw vice never worked well because it would never grip the saw tight enough. So I would say before buying one of those, make sure you can get your hands on it, make sure it closes tight um, and closes well, and that it's going to grip the saw well, because there's not a whole lot you can do to repair that. If they, if the jaws are bent or broken and they don't close well, um, there's not a whole lot you can do to fix that. So um, I would pass if it's, if it's, if it doesn't close um, evenly and tightly. 
Um, but if it does, you can get a decent antique saw vise maybe for $20, $25. So, um, you know, definitely don't discount that option, but be picky about what you're going to get. Um, if you, if money really isn't an object, well, if money's no object, obviously look for an old Acme saw vise. Uh, they're about 30 inches long and weigh a couple hundred pounds. And, uh, yeah, most people probably, uh, probably aren't going to be getting their hands on one of those. But, um, for the rest of us, um, if money is no object, my, I would wholeheartedly recommend the Gramercy saw vice from tools for working wood. Um, I got one as a father's day gift very shortly after they were introduced, however many years ago. Um, and so it was probably one of the first ones that they, uh, that they sold. And, uh, I've had it ever since, and it's still going strong. It's got a little bit of surface rust on it now from uh, being stored in the more humid environment that I have here in Virginia. Um, but once I build the new shop, you know, that'll I'll clean that right off, and it'll be just fine. Um, but it is by and large the the best saw vise that I've ever used. I've never had the opportunity to use an Acme, so some folks may uh, argue that the Acme saw vices are better, and I would not argue against them. Um, from what I have seen of them, but I've never had the opportunity to use one. Um, I have used several cast iron, old antique cast iron vices, um, and the Gramercy has beat them all hands down. So um, if money is not an object and you're willing to spend uh, what it costs, the Gramercy saw vice is definitely the best of the best as it uh, as it would be with, uh, you know, the smaller portable saw vices. It's got a nice 14 inch jaw. So you can file saws up to 28 inches in, you know, without moving the saw more than once, which is really nice. Um, it allows you to do, um, plenty of plate. Um, if you've got tenon saws and dovetail saws, it's, it's big enough to do them and, you know, without moving the blade at all. So, uh, wholeheartedly would recommend the Gramercy saw vise from tools for working wood. Um, and no, they're not paying me to say that. Um, like I said, I paid full price for the vice that I have. And it is just, I feel it is just probably the best vice available right now. So our last question comes from Ed Savinsky. He says, I've got some half inch ambrosia maple from a local Sawyer. And I made a few boxes. As I'm sure you know, the staining from the beetle makes for interesting colors in the wood. However, when I applied some of my go-to finishes, such as antique oil, teak oil, etc., the result was a dull yellow, which I don't find attractive. Is there a better solution for the maple and any woods with pronounced spalting? What about butcher block oil? I built a Paul Sellers project where some butcher block oil was enough for the walnut and sycamore. So... Um, go-to finishes, antique oil, teak oil, um, things like that. Yeah. Minwax antique oil is actually one of my go-to finishes as well. I really like the way it applies. I really like how hard it dries much harder than like a polyurethane, um, varnish. Um, but you are correct. It, it is going to impart a bit of an amber hue to whatever you put it on. And that is due to the oil. Uh, antique oil is a linseed oil based finish. Um, so, and linseed oil has a amber yellow color, so it's going to impor, impart some of that amber yellow into the finished project. Uh, teak oil, which again is nothing but a, an oil-based varnish. Um, I don't, 
asked Bob Flexner about teak oil, but it has nothing to do with teak. Um, there's no teak in the finish, and it's it's really just a wiping varnish. Again, it's a, a an oil-based wiping varnish. So once again, most likely linseed oil-based. That's where that amber color is coming from. Any oil-based product is going, whether whether it's tongue oil-based, which is pretty rare, or um, linseed oil-based, is going to impart some yellow color. So um, if you don't want that amber yellow color at all, I would say definitely stay away from any type of oil-based varnish. Shellac, same type of thing. All shellac is going to have some small amount of yellow amber color to it. Even the super, um, the ultra super blonde shellacs still have some of that yellow amber tint. So if you want to avoid that color, then I would say you're going to want to avoid shellac as well. That doesn't leave too many options. Uh, what you've got left are basically is basically um, water-based clear coats or um, or lacquer. Um, lacquer, you know, lacquer's fine if you have the equipment to spray it. There are brushing lacquers. I've never used them myself. Um, in fact, I've never even used you know like a pre-cat lacquer with a spray gun. Um, all of the lacquer work that I have done has been out of a rattle cam. And it makes for a really nice finish if you if you do it right and if you do it well. Rattle can lacquer is actually quite nice and dries quite fast, and it does dry um, more or less water clear. It does not impart any color at all. But most lacquer is quite glossy, so you're going to have to rub it out afterwards if you want that toned down satin sheen. You can get uh, more satin type finishes in uh, rattle can lacquer. Um, but anything that is a satin finish is going to have things added to it to give it that satin finish. And as a result, the finish doesn't dry quite as hard. So, um, I prefer to just spray, you know, a full on gloss lacquer. And then if I want a satin finish, let the lacquer dry and cure for, you know, a good week and then rub it out with some steel wool, um, and get it down to the, uh, the satin sheen that I want. Your other option is water-based finishes. Um, I've talked about them in previous podcasts. I have not had good luck with brushable water-based finishes. Um, I just don't like them. Uh, and I've had plenty of folks tell me, well, water, you know, water-based finishes can be great, but you really need to spray them. Well, if you don't have spray equipment, that kind of creates a problem. Um, I don't have spray equipment. Uh, I don't have any desire to get HVLP spray equipment right now. So once again, water fit, water-based finishes are not an option for me, but those are basically your choices. If you want a water clear, um, you know, drying film finish would be a water-based finish, whether it's a, a water-based varnish or a water-based lacquer, um, or a, you know, standard, um, standard lacquer butcher block oil. Um, is great for you know butcher blocks and things like that, but essentially all butcher block oil is is mineral oil, and you can get that in the grocery store, or the drug store. Um, it's a laxative for the most part. Um, you can use it on but you know on anything really. People use it on spoons and and turned wooden bowls and butcher block cutting boards and things like that. Um, I don't personally consider it a finish because it doesn't dry. It's, it's a non-drying oil. So it's one of those things where 
you know, it, it'll soak in, it'll eventually soak through and soak into, you know, whatever that piece is sitting on or, or, you know, just from the constant maintenance of wiping the piece down, you'll eventually wipe most of that oil away and the wood will dry out again um, because it's a non-drying oil. So you're going to constantly have to reapply butcher block oil um, if that's what you're using. Um, another reason I don't care for mineral oil for most um, most projects is because it's a, I mean, essentially it's, it's a per- petroleum derivative. So um, while, yeah, it's a laxative and it's, you know, technically safe to ingest, um, it's just not something that, that I tend to, to, to use very much. Um, again, you know, I use it for honing oil for my oil stones because again, because it's a non-drying oil, um, it works really good for that. But, um, I don't use it as a quote unquote finish because I personally, my opinion is I don't consider it a finish because it never dries. Some people, you know, would consider it a finish, but it's just one of those things that you have to renew all the time. Um, for your spalted maple boxes, I'm not sure that you would be happy with it because again, it's the box, you know, if you could put it on, but the box is essentially going to feel greasy all the time because the oil will never dry. So I'm not sure that's exactly what you're going to want and that that's going to make you happy. Um, I think you'd be better off going with, um, you know, a, a lacquer finish or, uh, some type of water-based varnish. So that's going to do it for our questions for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the contact form. So today's main topic is all about dovetails. And maybe not everything, but I'm going to talk about a bunch of stuff related to dovetails because everybody seems to uh, to like dovetails and always wants to talk dovetails and make dovetails and has questions about dovetails. So today we're going to talk about dovetails. Um, and we'll, uh, you know, there are a lot of different types of dovetails. I mean, you've got through dovetails and half blind or, or sometimes called lapped dovetails. Uh, blind dovetails, blind miter dovetails, houndstooth dovetails, Bermuda dovetails. There are tons of different types of dovetails. And the things I'm going to talk about today, for the most part, will apply to all the different types. And the type of dovetail that you're going to use for your project really is going to depend on the situation and your your desire for the, the look of the piece and uh, why you're using dovetails, you know, the, the whole purpose um, for using, for choosing that particular joint in a particular situation. So there are a lot of reasons you might use, uh, these different types of dovetails, but for the most part, the, um, the process of making them is is pretty much the same, regardless of the type of dovetail you're talking about. Um, and, and the little details about them really are, don't change from, from one to the other. So the first thing I want to talk about is the um, the angle. You'll often hear folks say that you should use a, a one in six uh, a one in six ratio for um, for softwoods and a one in seven or a one in eight ratio for hardwoods. Does that really matter? Um, and in my experience, no, it doesn't matter whatsoever. 
Um, you know, there there are there are folks who will say that if you go with a too steep of a ratio, you know, in a in a softwood, that it could make the corners too fragile and they could break off. Yeah, maybe, but in a, in a typical piece, whether it's a drawer or a chest or something like that, there are multiple dovetails cut in that corner, and there are going to be more. There's going to be more than enough glue surface to hold everything together. Um, so I wouldn't worry so much about, you know, a corner of a tail breaking off or something like that because, you know, you, you decided to go with a steep angle. Um, my recommendation is go with what looks good to you. Forget all the recommendations based on the type of wood and just go with what looks good to you. Uh, personally, I like one in five and I use one, one to five angle for everything. Hardwoods, softwoods, anything that I make with dovetails, it's always one in five because I've, I've played with all the different angles and one in five is what looks good to me. It doesn't look like a router made dovetail. Um, and it doesn't look like too steep of an angle. Um, I know other folks like, you know, something that's a little bit less drastic, maybe a one in six or one in seven. And there are other folks who prefer something even uh, more bold, like a one in four. Um, go at what looks good to you um, and don't worry about the strength. There's, Regardless of the angle, there's going to be plenty of strength in the joint. So don't worry uh, about affecting the strength of the joint by the angle that you choose because it really doesn't matter. Um, the next... <laughs> The, the, my next favorite controversial topic is that the whole pins first versus tails first debate. Um, again, it really doesn't matter. And it comes down to how you learn um, and how you choose to cut the joint. Um, I, I've said before on this podcast, I'm, I've, I learned to do it both ways. I learned to cut tails first. I learned to cut pins first. My preference is to cut pins first. It's just the way that I work. Um, it's not because I learned, you know, from Frank Klaus or, or anybody like that. It's just, you know, I tried it both ways when I was learning to cut dovetails and for whatever reason, pins first tend, tended to work better for me. So that's the way, that's how I stuck with it. And I've cut, for the most part, cut pins first ever since. So that's how I cut my dovetails. But it doesn't matter how you cut them. It really just comes down to what you're comfortable with um, and what works for you. Are there pros and cons to to both ways? Sure. Um, If you cut your tails first, you know, if you're doing something like a drawer, you can gang cut them. So you can cut your tails on both drawer sides at the same time. To me, that's kind of a a red herring of of an advantage Um, because it's really not that much faster to, to cut, to gang cut two drawer sides than it is to cut the, uh, the two sides separately. The bulk of the time that it takes in dovetailing is to remove the waste. And when you gang cut your tails, typically you're remove you're still removing the waste separately, um, on the two boards. You might be able to, co- if you're using a saw, you might be able to cope out the waste on both at the same time. But again, that's not really the time intensive part, the time intensive part is the chisel work and you're doing that separately. Um, so 
you know, to me, like I said, that that's kind of a red herring argument. Um, you know, the, the whole gang cutting of your tailboards thing. Um, I don't buy into it. I, you know, I've tried it and to me, it really wasn't any faster than cutting the two sides separately. Um, but you know, it is something to think about in terms of cutting your, uh, tails first. Um, one of the other reasons I hear for cutting tails first is because you can cut, you can saw from the outside face of the joint, um, and, and cause all any tear out from the saw or any blowout from the saw to be on the inside of the drawer or the case rather than the outside. Um, yeah, I guess, um, I don't really see a reason why you can't do the same thing with your pins. There's really no reason you can't saw from the outside face towards the inside, um, sawing your pins as well. So, um, I don't really see that as a, as a really good reason to cut tails first. Uh, some folks think that it's easier to transfer your marks from your tailboard to your pin board because you can lay the board horizontally uh, along your bench and uh, right across the end grain of a, of a pin board that's clamped in a vise. Maybe so. Um, I find, especially for smaller stuff, it's just as easy to stand the pin board up vertically. And in fact, the pin board, the weight of the pin board actually helps to, uh, to hold it in place while you're marking the tails from the pin. So, um, you know, I don't really see an advantage to either method there either. You know, one is just as good as the other. Um, the one thing that I will say is if you like to use the, um, what do they call it? The 140 trick. If you like to plane that little rabbit on the inside of your tailboard to help you align the tails for marking the pins, you know, that's, that's one benefit of, uh, cutting your tails first is that you can use that method. Um, you can't do that. If you're going to cut your pins first, you really can't use the, 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 that Stanley 140 method. I suppose you could, um, plane the rabbit on the inside of the tailboard anyway, and use that to help you register your pins, um, against that wall. But, um, I don't know that it has as much benefit in that case. Um, I do think cutting your pins first actually does have a couple of benefits compared to cutting your tails first. And maybe this is why I stuck with it this way for so many years. But um, the first is that it, I think it's easier to mark your tailboard from your pin board because there's so much more room between your pins compared to tails. Typically, when most people cut dovetails, they don't cut even pins and tails, even even thickness or even width pins and tails. Usually it's a it's a pretty big tail with a pretty small pin. Well, if you cut your tails first and then you have to mark your pin board from your tailboard, you need a pretty thin pencil or a pretty or a thin knife to be able to get in there and mark your uh your pin board from your tailboard. However, if you cut your pin board first, you've got all the room in the world to go ahead and get a pencil in there or a knife to mark your tailboard from your pinboard. Now, maybe it's because I prefer to use a pencil to mark my tails from my pins, but 
Um, by cutting my pins first, I can get a pencil right in there and see what I'm doing. And I don't have to guess whether or not my knife is tied up against the wall of the tail um, or not. And whether or not I'm getting a good scribe um, to transfer from my tails to my pins. I can see inside, you know, between those pins. And I know that I'm getting my pencil line right where it needs to be. Um, so that's one of the reasons I like to do pins first is because I just think it's easier to uh, transfer, to make that transfer from the pin board to the tail board rather than the other way around. The other thing is when you start to make some of the more complex joints, uh, types of dovetails, the, um, the, the full blind, for example, you can't cut tails first in a full blind dovetail. You have to cut pins first. There's no other way to do it because you cannot transfer your tailboard. There's no way to transfer the marks from your tailboard to the pin board in a full blind joint. You just can't get anything in there. So you have to make the pins first when you're doing full blind dovetails. And while you can do tails first when you're making half blind or lapped dovetails, I find that it's easier to cut the pins first um, because the pins are more of a challenge to cut in half blind dovetails because you can't saw much of that waste out. So chances are you're more likely to screw up when it comes to making the pin half of that joint. So when you're doing a half blind dovetail, if you cut the pin board first, if something gets screwed up or you're not right on your line, it's not a big deal because you're still, uh, you still have the opportunity to transfer and cut a tailboard to match. But if you cut your tails first, which is the easier cut to make, and then you transfer those marks to your pin board and you make a mistake on your pin board, um, you're kind of screwed because you know, then, then you're stuck with fixing that mistake because you've already made the tailboard, so you can't make the tailboard to match. So that's one of the reasons that I like to do pins first too, because I feel that there's more opportunity for error in a half blind dovetail on that pin board. So by doing the pin board first, I can account for any error when I then transfer and make the tailboard. Uh, but ultimately, there's no right way. Um, it really just comes down to what you're comfortable with and uh, and how you how you like to cut them better. Um, I cut pins first. A lot of people cut tails first. To each their own. Some of the things that you can do. So hiding grooves. So you're going to make a drawer. You're going to make a box. Um, how do you handle the grooves when in those things? And dovetails are a great way to do that. By making by using half blind dovetails, you can line that groove up so that it runs right through one of the half blind sockets. For example, if you're making a drawer front, you cut your pins or your your sockets in the front uh, in the drawer front itself, and then you plow your groove so that it runs through the bottom socket. That way you don't have to worry about plowing a stopped groove because you can plow right through from socket to socket and then your drawer sides, um, you plow that groove straight through on the tail itself. And when you assemble that joint, the groove is hidden by the tail um, so you don't see the groove on the end of the board. If you want to do a groove, let's say you're making a box, not necessarily a drawer, Let's say you're making a box and you want to do through dovetails. You really don't want to make half blind dovetails. 
Well, you can still use through dovetails. What you're going to have to do, uh, you you can either make stopped grooves, but um, you've probably heard me say on this podcast before that I don't like making stopped grooves because they take so long to do by hand. Um, so my preference would be to make through grooves, but then I would make the I would alter the pin and the pin and tail where the groove is going to be by making them a little bit shallower. So if you plow a groove in the bottom of the board and you lay out to have a tail where that groove is going to be, make the tail only the thickness of the groove so that essentially on that tail, the groove gets taken away. On the matching pin, you would make that pin half deep. So if you, let's say you had four tails, you're making a dovetail box and each corner had four tails. Your top three tails would be the full thickness of the, uh, of the material that you're making the box sides out of. That bottom tail would be half thickness. And then similarly, the mating pins, the, the three top pins or sockets for the tails would be full depth, the same thickness as the board. And the bottom, uh, the bottom socket would be half depth. And that's how you would hide your groove. And if you don't really understand it, I know it's difficult to explain and, and show in a podcast, in an audio podcast, draw it out and you'll kind of understand a little bit better uh, what I'm talking about. Um, miters, mitered grooves uh, or miter dovetails are a great way to hide grooves as well. Uh, it gives you a nice, you can plow um, straight through if you're going to do through dovetails um, and you make the dovetails where the groove are, you make the tail and the pin, you make them mitered. Um, and again, it's, it takes care of hiding that groove so that you don't have to make a stopped groove. So dovetails leave you lots of great little ways that you can hide grooves in the bottom of a drawer or the bottom of a box. Uh, which board gets the pins? Which one gets the tails? This is always one of those things that gets talked about a lot as well. I'm making a uh, a dresser or I'm making a chest, which board, you know, which board should I put the pins on and which one should I put the tails on? A lot of times it just comes down to visual preference. Let's say you're making a, a blanket chest that's going to sit on a floor. Um, you know, you might want to see those angled tails on the front of the case because that's the pretty part of the joint is the angled, the angled tails. So something like that, I might put the tails on the front part of the front and back of the case, the front and back of the chest. The benefit is the secondary benefit there is that on those chests, they usually have handles on the sides. So when you're going to move one of those chests, you're going to drag it from one of those handles on the sides. Well, the tails are going to be in an orientation on the front and back of the, of the case to resist any forces um, of dragging that chest across the floor. If you had put the, the tails on the sideboards of the chest and the glue failed, when you went to drag that chest across the floor, there would be a chance that you could pull that joint apart. But by putting the dovetails on the front and back of the chest, when you go to pull on the handles mounted to the side of that chest, even if the glue were to fail, the joint's not going to come apart. So two reasons why you might want to put the tails on the front and back boards and the pins on the sideboards of a, of a blanket chest, say. Um, what about a wall cabinet? 
Um, well, something that's going to hang in a wall, I would tend to put the tails on the sides and the pins on the top and bottom. And it's for similar reason that you, that we just talked about with the, uh, with the chest, the weight of that, of the, the contents in that cabinet are going to want to pull the bottom board down. If you were to put the, um, the tails on the top and bottom board, the weight of the items in that, in that wall cupboard are going to want to pull the joints apart. But by putting this, the tails on the sides of the cupboard, um, you address that and the, uh, the weight that's on the, uh, on the bottom, top and bottom is not going to want to pull the chest apart because the sides are going, the tails on the sides are going to resist, um, the chest pulling itself apart from, from its own weight. So when I look at, you know, which board's going to get pins, which one's going to get tails, that's kind of how I assess is, um, how is this piece going to see the most stress? And I will orient the pins and tails in such a way as to resist that stress. Again, because the joint can only be pulled apart in one direction. So whatever direction the, those forces are going to be, I want to orient the pin and tail boards to resist those forces. Um, so that the joint doesn't pull itself apart in the event that the glue fails. So another thing you might ask yourself when you're making, uh, when you're making your dovetails is should I leave the, um, the end grain of the pins and tails proud? In other words, when I mark my baseline for my pins and tails, should I mark it a hair over thickness so that when I assemble the joint, the, uh, the end grain of the pins and the end grain of the tails is slightly proud and can be planed down? Or should I mark that baseline slightly under where it should be so that the face grain of the two sides of the, of the side in the front or the side in the back or whatever um, remains slightly proud and needs to be planed down? Um, and there's reasons you know, that you might do it either way. For example, let's say you're making a drawer. Now, you have already fit your drawer front to the opening, right? Let's say you're doing like a little shaker table and you, you're going to do half blind dovetails. You're going to do a nice, uh, nice solid cherry drawer front. Maybe you're going to use some pine or some poplar for the drawer sides and back. Uh, and you've already sized the drawer front to fit that opening. Well, if you make your baselines a hair over the thickness of the board, you're going to end up with your pins slightly proud of the sides of the drawer, which means you're going to have to plane that drawer front down to be flush with the drawer sides if you want to flush it up. Well, by doing that, you're going to plane your drawer front smaller, and now you're going to end up planing it too small for the opening in the table, and you're going to have gaps on either side of the drawer. So the answer in that case is, uh, to actually do make your drawer so that when you lay out your dovetail baseline um, in your pin board, you lay it out so that it is slightly under the thickness of the sideboard of the drawer. That way, when you assemble the joint, the side sits slightly proud of the front, and then you can, when you go to plane and flush up that joint, you're planing down essentially the thickness of the side. Now, 
Of course, that means you're going to have to plane the entire drawer side and take more thickness off that board. So that's something that you might want to account for. But it's going to ensure that you're not going to reduce the size of your the reduce the size of your drawer front um, and make it too small for the opening, and you won't be able to add any wood back. So, um, so that's my preference when I'm making drawers is to uh, assemble, is, is to, to lay out and assemble the joint so that the sides of the drawer sit slightly proud of the drawer front um, during the final assembly, during the uh, from the drawer front and the drawer back. And I'll plane the sides down so that they're flush, uh, not the end grain. The other benefit to that is that it actually makes the, um, the joint easier to clamp up if you need to. If you lay out your joint so that the end grain of the pins and tails is going to sit slightly proud um, and you're going to plane the end grain down after assembly, you might have a hard time clamping that joint up. You're going to need to make some type of clamping call that's going to essentially straddle the end grain of the pins when you go to clamp that joint up. Well, if your face grain is going to sit proud because you made your baseline a hair less than the thickness um, of the board, uh, then you don't need to worry about that. And you can just go ahead and, uh, and clamp everything up and everything, you know, you won't have to have any type of special call uh, because the face grain is going to sit proud and then you just plane it down afterwards. So um, usually my preference is to, uh, to leave the face grain slightly proud. Um, but some folks do it the other way. If you're making a case, like a carcass for a chest of drawers or something like that, um, I would say there there's a good argument for doing it the other way around, leaving the end grain of the pins and tails proud, because it'll be much less material to flush up after the fact. And uh, and since you're not worried about fitting that carcass into another opening. You know, if you reduce if you reduce the size, the length of the of the sides, ever so slightly by planing down the end grain, it's not a big deal. Um, but for a drawer, on the other hand, it would be a big deal. So, you know, consider things like that when you're deciding whether to leave the end grain proud or leave the face grain proud. So, finally, one of the last uh, little points of contention is: Do you show your dovetails or do you hide them? Um, and again, this really comes down to personal preference. Uh, but in some cases, I think there's something to be said for hiding the joinery. Um, I am of the persuasion that I would, I typically want my joinery to be hidden. Um, I don't really see it as a design feature. Um, so it's not something that I tend to want to show off in a piece. Uh, for example, uh, if I am making, say, you know, a, a chest of drawers, and I'm going to dovetail the sides to the top and bottom, usually what I'm going to do is I'm going to put half-blind dovetails uh, at the top. So I'll put the, the tails on the top of the sideboards, and I'll put the pins on the top board. And it's going to be a half-blind dovetail joint like it would be if I was making a drawer. And that's because when I put some molding along the sides of the top of that case after assembly, that molding is going to cover up the dovetail joint. 
because I don't want to see it. Um, if I wasn't going to put molding, then I would probably do like a blind, some type of blind dovetail joint, blind miter or, or whatever. But usually, um, if I'm doing a chest of drawers, even if it's, you know, like a shaker chest of drawers or something like that, there's going to be some kind of molding to dress up that top edge. Um, so I'm going to use that molding to cover up my dovetails. So I'm going to make half blind dovetails and I'm going to uh, put a molding over it, over the tails so that the tails are not visible from the side and from the top because I used half blind dovetails. Um, again, you don't see anything but the uh, the glue seam the between the molding and the top board. Now at the bottom, rather than putting the tails on the sideboard, I will put half blind pins on the sideboard and I will put the tails on the bottom board. And again, it's because I don't want to see the dovetails. Um, so the, the bottom board will be facing down into the plinth or the feet of the chest of drawers and the side will be nice and clean. Again, no joinery seam. Um, so that's, that's my preference. Um, same thing with drawers. You know, I will, I will never ever make a drawer with through dovetails on the front. I just don't think it looks good. I think it looks terrible. Um, I've seen drawers. I've seen people who will, they will make through dovetails and they will put, um, you know, the tails on the sides and, um, you'll see these big rec, this big rectangular joinery on the corners of the, of the drawer front, um, because they used through dovetails on the drawer. Um, and to my eye, it's just not a good look. Um, so it's not something that I would do, um, but that's something you have to decide for yourself. Same thing with, um, with a chest, um, you know, like that, that chest of drawers, you know, there are even some period shaker examples where the, um, the joinery is visible on the top or even on the sides, you know, maybe there's no molding. So they just used through dovetails, um, on the top corners of the, uh, of the chest. Um, and to me, I don't know, it, it just, I think it detracts from the look of the overall piece. I don't think, I don't see the joinery, uh, as a design element. I think it, it kind of takes your eye, distracts your eye in my view. So uh, I tend to try to hide the joinery as much as I can. Um, in a drawer, obviously, when you're opening the drawer, I don't mind seeing the joinery there. Um, but on the exterior show surfaces of a finished piece, I typically don't want to see any joinery at all. But that's just me. That's uh, one of those things, again, that you're going to have to decide for yourself when you build your own pieces. Is your joinery going to be a feature of the piece? Or is it functional in nature only? Um, and are you going to take every uh, every road possible to hide it instead of show it? So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and allowing me to do this. I am extremely grateful for all the support that you've all provided. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com or you can leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123 or use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt041. And in the show notes, you can find any links that I referred to in today's show. And you can also find links to follow me on all my social media accounts. 
Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon and get your questions answered in the monthly Q&A video, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you'll find links to do so in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com support. So thank you again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.